Breaking news from the International Space Station today. Quarantined mission specialist Kurt Johnson was thrilled to hear the news this week that after an undisclosed amount of time in quarantine, he will finally be allowed to go back inside the International Space Station. According to sources, it started with an innocent sneeze. As mission specialist Johnson was performing routine maintenance on the inside of the ship, he got a tickle in his nose and let out a small sneeze. Studies show that sneezes are approximately 12.7 times grosser in a zero-g environment. The crew members turned and looked in horror to see Kurt floating in a cloud of fine mucus droplets. Considering the real danger we face up here from coronavirus, we knew we had to take every precaution, said Commander Ralph Dongelfritz. We couldn't confirm whether our mission specialist had COVID-19, so just to be safe, we elected to tie him to a robotic arm outside the space station for a few weeks. Mr. Johnson has been outside in isolation for a long time and is looking forward to reuniting with his friends inside the space station. I've enjoyed the time in silence, he said, just staring at our beautiful planet in isolation, but I'm eager for human interaction as well as a greater protection from solar radiation. Commander Dongelfritz made clear that while Johnson will be allowed back in the space station, there will be a new normal the entire crew will have to get used to. Johnson will be required to wear a space helmet on his head at all times and will be strapped to a bunk covered in blankets for the duration of the trip. This is Joel Berry, and you're listening to the Petty Profit Podcast. Welcome. Hello and welcome to the Petty Profit Podcast, where we discuss news, politics, and culture from a Christian worldview. I am your host, Joel Berry, and this is the Tuesday show, or at least I hope it's going to be released Tuesday. We'll see. I'm running a little behind today, so I apologize for that. Uh, But I'm glad to be with you here once again, as things are slowly starting to reopen around the country. I hope uh, you're doing well. I hope your business is going okay. And don't forget, if you need help, if you need prayers, don't hesitate to reach out to us at contact at thepettyprofit.com, or you can message me on uh, the Facebook page as well. I would love to hear from you. Hope you're doing well out there. Um, I'm, I'm looking forward to getting back to normal life and putting this whole thing behind me. I, uh, got my first haircut in about two months uh, last week uh, on the day that the haircutting salons were allowed to open here in Ohio. And I waited in line for about three and a half hours (laughs) for this haircut. And uh, it was so worth it. Oh my gosh, it felt so good to get my haircut. It felt like I was just kind of like uh, cutting away all the junk of the last two months and leaving it all behind. So it it felt symbolic in that sense. So it feels good to hopefully be getting back to a, a little bit of normalcy here. I hope you're feeling the same way as well. I wanted to talk today real quick about uh, something that I like to call censorship laundering. And I don't know if that's a term original with me. I I think I made it up, but you know how the internet is. If you think you've thought of something, uh, there's probably about 10 other people who have thought of it before you. Um, But censorship laundering, I'm going to explain to you here, is something that is being done to conservative or at least free thinking or libertarian voices in the country. And it's being done by our friends on the left. Um, Now, one of the primary characteristics of the modern regressive left is a love of state power, suppression, and censorship. These people are not progressive. They are regressive. They are trying to pull us back to an age of government power and feudalism. 
in spite of their lofty language about equality and freedom and peace for all, uh, they're ultimately about power. And unfortunately for them, they have a U.S. Constitution and 200 years of Supreme Court precedent standing in the way of the power they desperately want. Now, unfortunately for us, tyranny, like the man eating velociraptors from Jurassic Park, always finds a way. In our case, they have found the loophole in our Constitution, and they have exploited it in a partnership with corporate tech monopolies, fact-checkers, and nonprofits in a process I like to call censorship laundering. Now, censorship laundering is similar to money laundering, but instead of passing money through legitimate businesses to conceal its source, you're passing targeted suppression and censorship through multiple hands to conceal its true source and intention. Now, here's here's how it works. I'll kind of try to break it down for you here, so bear with me. It starts when leftist politicians with their friends in the media, and, you know, I, I probably shouldn't exempt the right here as well. I, I don't doubt that if tech companies were uh, conservative-minded and had that much power, there would probably be considerate temptation among right-wing politicians to do exactly what the left is doing now. But as we stand, it is currently the left that is doing this. So leftist politicians with their friends in the media place tremendous pressure on tech companies, which are deeply in bed with the government, to stop the spread of what they call misinformation and hate speech. That's just their euphemism for any speech they disagree with. And then tech companies, they don't necessarily censor directly. They transfer that responsibility to government-funded leftist university researchers who then conduct studies, they create credible-sounding reports of widespread misinformation sharing, and they design algorithms, or they help the tech companies design algorithms. The university researchers then compile their data from fact-checkers like Snopes and nonprofits like the Southern Poverty Law Center, who portray themselves as impartial but in reality are extremely partisan leftist organizations. These leftist organizations then raise the alarm about findings on misinformation and hate speech to the media, urging the tech companies to do something about it. And of course, the media will immediately kick into gear with unending stories about the danger of misinformation and falsehoods being spread around the internet and how we need to do something about it. The tech companies need to do something about it right now. So the tech companies then respond by plugging in an algorithm based off the data compiled by leftist university researchers, which in turn was based off of findings from leftist nonprofits. Views opposed by leftists are then invisibly suppressed online, and the tyrants in government get their way while being able to claim no direct responsibility for the suppression of free speech. The source of the government censorship has changed hands three times and is effectively concealed, just like laundered money. It's a convoluted process, and it's meant to be convoluted. It's meant to be hard to pin down, because it helps to conceal what is really going on here. And this isn't just kind of some theoretical idea or some conspiracy theory I have here. I, I witnessed this happen firsthand with the Babylon Bee. The Bee has been a thorn in the side of progressive media and politicians for a long time, their ability to cut through the media narrative and the self-importance of politicians with a lighthearted joke bothers them. <laughs> it really bothers them. And uh, there are some B articles that get more traffic than CNN and New York Times articles covering the same subjects. And, and I guarantee you that that drives them nuts. 
But here's how it happened with the bee, and I'll, I'll try to kind of go through it as methodically as I can, and so bear with me as I, as I kind of go through this step by step. So it started with Snopes, which, uh, like I said, has sadly become a partisan leftist organization that, that presents itself as an independent fact checker. It laid the groundwork early last year by labeling several Babylon Bee stories as false. And this led Facebook to try to remove bee articles and stories from the site. But what they were doing was far too obvious, and they were beat back by an outraged conservative media. The censorship attempt would have to be a little more sneaky if they were going to try it a second time. And that's exactly what they did. And they they were a lot smarter about it the second time. So what they did was, under pressure from Democrats and the media to deal with this misinformation, Facebook then went and funded a study um, at The Ohio State University, actually, uh, my home state, The Ohio State University to highlight the dangers of satire on the internet. So this study was conducted by a gentleman named Dr. R. Kelly Garrett, um, a professor of communication at the university, and he's also a leftist. And I, I infer that just from his Twitter feed, um, it it makes it pretty clear where his loyalties lie when you, you read his Twitter. So uh, Dr. Garrett receives grants from Facebook directly, as well as organizations like the Social Science Research Council, which is another institution of leftist academia. And his past studies include research on, quote unquote, problematic sharing behavior and, quote unquote, fighting back against political misperceptions on social media. And so what Dr. Garrett did was he took five Babylon Bee articles and he removed all the humor, uh, and he retranslated them into plausible-sounding headlines. So, for example, um, there was a B headline that said, Ilhan Omar says, if Israel is so innocent, then why do they insist on being Jews? And that's a, you know, a riff on uh, Ilhan Omar's anti-Semitism. Uh, he took that headline, you know, obviously took the B logo off of it, took all the context and, and reformatted the headline in, into this wording. This is what it became. Representative Ilhan Omar said that being Jewish is an inherently hostile act, especially among those living in Israel. Now, when you take away the humor and the irony and the joke in the B logo off the top, you make it sound a lot more plausible, right? And so that's what he did. He took he took B headlines, he made them sound more plausible by removing the humor and irony, and he took those and sent them to 1,204 people and asked them this question. Do you think this is true? Did this really happen? Did it definitely happen? Maybe happen or not at all? And to no surprise at all, a, por- a sizable portion of the respondents found these statements credible. Not not the majority, but about 20% of the people read these doctored statements, these translated Babylon Bee articles, and said that this could be true. This sounds credible. And so he took these results and wrote a big article that was shared by mainstream media all over the place and and tried to take these results and use it to illustrate that too many people on social media were reading Babylon Bee satire and thinking it was real and that this was problematic. Even though the people in his study never actually read a Babylon Bee headline, they were reading his translations, his more credible-sounding translations of the Babylon Bee headlines. <laughs> so the study was quickly ridiculed for its sloppy and really deceptive methodology and its seemingly agenda-driven focus on the Babylon Bee. 
Now, they have since changed their initial article several times and added more data to make it seem less slanted. Uh, the original article is no longer available. So if you look for it, you won't be able to find it unless you use the, the Wayback Machine or something on the internet. But this sloppy and deceptive methodology did not stop major news outlets from widely sharing the initial findings. Uh, Facebook and the leftist media used that as justification for going after the Babylon Bee. Now, this is where it gets interesting, okay? Because yes, the story was kind of discredited. The study was kind of discredited. Yes, the media still shared it. But the process of censorship didn't stop. It's not like they said, oh, gosh, we stand corrected. We're so sorry. Um, and, you know, we'll retract this. They didn't do that at all. This is where it gets interesting. After the study, as part of their recommendations to Facebook, Dr. R. Kelly Garrett, who headed this study, included as part of his recommendations some of the work done by someone named Fatima Torabi Acer for a group called Neiman Lab. And this guy, Fatima Torabi Acer, he created an algorithm that relies on linguistic analysis to detect fake news and suppress it on Facebook. <laughs> Here's the kicker with this algorithm that Dr. R. Kelly Garrett recommended to Facebook. The data for the fake news algorithm came from Snopes. <laughs> So after changing hands several times to disguise the intent, we ended up with an algorithm that takes Babylon B stories that were initially deemed false by Snopes, and it uses them as a template for censoring fake news automatically and invisibly via the algorithm. So Facebook is essentially doing exactly what they had done more openly last year, only this time they're just being more sneaky with it. They're taking Snopes data looking at all of the Babylon Bee articles that were rated false by Snopes and using them as linguistic templates to suppress fake news on the internet. Obviously, that's a bit convoluted and, and kind of hard to track down, which is why it's not really talked about very much. And that's the whole point. All this is done with the knowledge of progressive politicians and media who applaud these efforts. They may not be able to censor speech directly, but with a little bit of laundering by their friends in leftist-run corporate monopolies, they can accomplish the same goals and still come away looking clean. The modern American left, often portrayed as the champion of the 99%, they actually love big business. Because through powerful corporate tech monopolies and government-funded researchers, they finally have been able to accomplish what they never could before, the silencing of anyone who would question their power. And all it took was a little good old-fashioned laundering. So, what do we need to do? I don't know. I, I think we should probably look really closely at these tech companies. I think that we should really, we, we really need to divorce corporate America from the government. They are too intertwined with each other. They are too reliant on each other. And it's not, it's called crony capitalism. It's not good. And we also need to hold politicians responsible for what they are clearly trying to accomplish through the partnerships with these tech companies, with these research foundations that they're funding, with these nonprofits that claim to be, you know, impartial. It's really important to pay attention to what these people are doing um, because you know, I, I love that speech by Jeff Goldblum in Jurassic Park. 
where he talks about how life always finds a way. Well, <laughs> the same could be said of evil and tyranny as well. <laughs> you know, it it never is fully dead and it always finds a way to rear its ugly head somewhere else once it's been squashed. And so I think it's it's on us as people who care about the truth, as people who care about our countrymen and our neighbors. You know, we don't want to be paranoid. We don't want to be conspiracy theorists here. But we we need to be smart and we need to be shrewd. And we need to remain skeptical about what trusted authorities in media, academia, science, government, what they're telling us. Above all, be dedicated to the truth. Be dedicated to what is real. And sometimes that involves a little bit of extra work to to do the digging, as I did here with with this kind of this laundering scam and and looking past the way news is framed in the narrative to find out what is really going on, to find out the whole story. We need people who are curious. We need people who are skeptical and who are relentlessly dedicated to the truth. So that is all I got for you today. But before I leave you completely here, I just want to make a comment about Ravi Zacharias, who passed away this week, and um, express my gratefulness for him and uh, for the just the profound effect he obviously had on so many people as a, a great defender of the faith. And so if you're not familiar with Ravi Zacharias, I highly recommend you check him out. And a good place to start is just to look him up on YouTube, uh, watch some of his talks, um, Why I'm Not an Atheist. Um, there are some short clips of him. And uh, he always came across as just such a a genuine, uh, a loving, a humble man, um, but also very smart, very knowledgeable, and was instrumental in encouraging me as a Christian to explore my faith um, in in intellectual ways, as well as a heart way. And he's also the one that really introduced me to the great writers, you know, because I it started with me listening to Ravi Zacharias and hearing him quote these great people like G.K. Chesterton, C.S. Lewis, and it, it caused me to seek those writers out and further explore and, and learn and grow. So he was an amazing, amazing man, amazing figure. Um, he is in glory in the presence of Jesus right now, which is just an awesome thought, and uh, I'm thankful for I'm thankful for him. And anytime someone like that passes away, it does make you reflect on, you know, what what effect am I having on the world? You know, what will be said um, of us when we are gone? Um, who will we leave behind and, and what will they say? And so good to think about um, and just wanted to say that about Ravi Zacharias. This has been the Petty Prophet Podcast. I appreciate you listening. Don't forget to go to iTunes. If you like this content, give us a five-star review. That really helps. Uh, we love you. We care about you. And we will be back later this week with another edition of The Man Hug with my brothers Aaron and Sam. Looking forward to that. Take care. Bye. Bye.